Heavenly Father, we've been singing of your majesty, we've been singing of your glory, we've been singing of your power. But Lord, we thank you that you're also the God who speaks. And we pray you'd help us now. Please teach us, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what are we going to do with Ruth? What are we supposed to do with this book tucked away in the Bible, this short little book? We've just heard the first chapter it read. I mean, what are we supposed to do with it? It's a story, and we'll see over the next few weeks, that it's a really, really beautiful love story between a man called Boaz and a woman called Ruth. It's a fantastic love story. But what are we supposed to do how do we know? It's a, it's a story. It's, it's not got commands to us. It's not a list of rules. It's just a story. What are we supposed to do with it? The answer to that question all comes down to what you think the Bible is. What do you make of the Bible? What do you think this book actually is? You see, if this book is just a book of made-up stories, nice tales that human beings have made up over the years, then we're free to pick and choose what we like, ignore what we don't like, and we may be able to learn some lessons. Let's all be nice like Ruth. And we can, you know, work hard and see what we think it might mean to us. And to be honest, we can make it mean whatever we want it to mean. We can distort it, we can twist it, we can make it whatever we want God to be saying. In fact, I... One of the main applications of my sermon would be about how you treat your mother-in-law, if you have a mother-in-law. That would be a big application from Ruth chapter 1, because that seems to be a lot about what it's about. So let's, that's nice, let's talk about that. Now that's very trendy in our world, actually. This idea that the key question is not so much what did the author mean, as what does the hearer think it means. Now, I, I am not a, a, a brilliant artist, okay? But even my small grasp of how art works today is that when you go into the Tate Modern and you stand in front of you something and you say, but what's it supposed to be? You will get tuts from the people around you because they say, that's not the question you're supposed to ask. You're not supposed to ask, what did the artist intend for this to be? You're supposed to ask this question, what does it mean to you? How does it make you feel? Does it make you feel happy? Does it make you feel sad? Does it evoke an emotion within you? Forget what the artist actually intended. That's not the point. The point is, what does it make you feel? Now, some people will treat the Bible like that. It has no actual meaning. It's just whatever you want it to be. But I want to say very clearly, that is to misunderstand what the Bible is. That's the kind of thing where you sit around in a group and we all open the Bible and we say, well, I like to think this means this. And then someone says, oh, I don't like, I I think it means this. And we go, that's nice, that's interesting, we can have this discussion. That's not what the Bible's for. The Bible doesn't work like that. And that's very important for us to understand. So it's not... Some people would say it's just a made-up stories. Other people would say it's kind of a history book. It's got history in it. Now, of course, you, you treat that differently to a storybook. Well, then the facts are real. There is a kind of a meaning to it. You can understand stuff about ancient Middle Eastern kind of like life and ritual and relationships and how does it work. And You can learn stuff from it. 
but it's very difficult to find out, so what? If you're an archaeologist, historian type person, fine. But what about normal people? <laughs> Apologies, if you're an archaeologist. But there is another way, and I want to try and show you what actually we believe the Bible says about itself. Now, I think it's quite warm in here, and I feel like we've turned the air conditioning to... Someone's done something to the air conditioning, and it... No, that's fine. I'm going to melt. Um, I'm going to melt, and you're going to sleep, and that's a problem. So, let's cool the place down. Um, right, here's, here's, here's what I want to show you, okay? This is how we must understand the Bible. This is what the Bible is all about. At least, this is what the Bible says it's about. I'm going to put some verse on... You probably won't be able to read this because it's very small, but I'm going to put it there and I'll read it to you. Here's the first thing, right? All scripture is God-breathed, right? All of the Bible, scripture is another name for the Bible, all of scripture, every single part of it, is breathed out by God. Written by all sorts of different people over thousands of years, but all of it breathed out by God. Every single word in this book comes on the breath of God. It is God's word. It is not a human invention. It comes with the breath of God. Every single part. So the book of Ruth is God's word. Here's another thing. Everything that was written in the past was written to teach us. Isn't that interesting? This wasn't just recorded because it happens to be history. It was written to teach us. It has something to teach us. So God's word to teach us. So that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. So this is not an irrelevant history book. It is a book for us, to teach us. It is massively relevant. So, you know, sometimes you hear people say, you know, the preacher has to make the Bible relevant today. No, he doesn't. That's not the preacher's job. The Bible is relevant the preacher's job is to try not to make it boring. That's my job. I have, it's not I have to make it exciting. No, no, the Bible is exciting and it is relevant. My job is to try to make it not, to try not to spoil it. And so if you're bored this afternoon as I speak, can I, I really want to make, you make this very clear. That's my fault, right? I get that I'm boring sometimes, but the Bible's not boring. The Bible is to teach us. So it's God's word to teach us. And here's, here's foundational stuff, right, about the book of Ruth. Here we are. These are the words from the lips of Jesus. Look what Jesus says. These are the very scriptures, he says. These, this. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, says Jesus. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. So piece all of that together, right? This is what you discover about the book of Ruth. It is God's word breathed out by God to teach us, to teach us what? To teach us to be kind to our mother-in-laws? No. Although, nothing wrong with that. God's word to teach us about Jesus. That is what the Bible is. That's what this book is. And therefore, for me to go, well, I like to think it means this, and we don't like that, and... You don't treat God's word like that. This is God speaking to us. And so the question this afternoon we should be asking as we look at the book of Ruth is not, what do I think this means? It should be this. What does God want to teach me about Jesus? That's the question. 
That is why the scripture, that's why the Bible was written. And this afternoon, God is speaking. The Bible is God's word. And he wants to speak to you. And whether you're someone who's a Christian, or whether you're someone who's here investigating it, whether you're someone who's been a Christian for donkey's years, or someone who's very, very new, God is speaking. He wants you to listen. Are you listening to him? Will you listen? He has something to teach you about Jesus. Of course, that's a bit weird, isn't it, when you get to Ruth? You say, hang on a second, the book of Ruth doesn't mention Jesus. I mean, the book of Ruth comes way before... Look, this is, this is where Ruth is. Jesus doesn't appear till about there in the story of the Bible. How can you say this book is about Jesus? Okay, without wanting to spoil the uh, punchline of Ruth, let me show you it is all about Jesus. Very quick, and then we'll dive into the detail. Have a look at uh, chapter 1, verse 1 of Ruth. In the days when the judges ruled. Okay, now that should immediately make you ask the question, what are the days when the judges ruled? Okay, well that takes you back to the book before, which is called Judges. Oh, handy. That must be the days when the judges ruled, right? Okay, let's find out what life was like when the judges ruled. Last verse of Judges, in those days, Israel had no king, everyone did as they saw fit. So these are the days of the judges. It was the days when there was no king and there was chaos in Israel. Everybody doing whatever they wanted. I mean, it was shocking. Judges chapter 19 is one of the most horrific chapters in the Bible. It is horrible what was going on. It is gruesome what was going on in Israel. And it was because there was no king. Now, in the days of that, when there was no king, suddenly we get a story about Ruth. Why? I'll tell you why. Go to the end of the book of Ruth. Let's just get this clear in our heads. Here's what God is doing through the book of Ruth. You've got to keep this clear in your heads. It finishes with a family tree, a genealogy. Verse 18. This then is the family line of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron the father of Ram. Ram the father of Aminadab. Aminadab the father of Narshon. Narshon the father of Salmon. Salmon the father of Boaz. Oh, key guy, he's the love interest who turns up in chapter 2 oh, spoiled it Boaz the father of Obed Obed the father of Jesse Jesse the father of David David, who will become the great king the great king that Israel needs the great king who will put all things right, except David isn't the great king Because he stuffs it up. And so another king is needed. And if you follow the family tree of Jesus, if you follow the family tree from David, from Boaz, from Boaz and Ruth, who have a son, who have a son, who have a son, who have David, who has a son, who has a son, who has a son, who has has Jesus. This is the family tree of Jesus. This is God bringing Jesus into the world. The whole of the Bible is about Jesus. And this book of Ruth shows us how utterly committed God is to his plan to bring the great king, Jesus, who will put all things right. But we're getting ahead of ourselves. We need to dive into detail. Set all that kind of stuff. We're going to see lots of that in the coming weeks. But 
Now, with that in our heads, let's dive into uh, Ruth chapter 1 and see uh, what's going on. The scene is set for us in the days when the judges ruled. There was a famine in the land. Life was tough, right? Now, of course, if, the, if God's people, Israel, who are supposed to be loving God and worshipping him, if actually they're just living as they want, doing as they see fit, bowing down to other gods, doing all sorts of stuff, just causing chaos, they live under God's judgment. God is not happy. There's a famine in the land. It's tough. Life is bad. this i love the way the bible does this right it zooms in right down on one family isn't that cool kind of this big god's big plan to save the universe oh one family that's how god works with individuals that's why i've called it's why i've called this series he noticed me that's what's going on in the book of ruth we're going to see how god has this cosmic plan to save the universe and he does it through the most unexpected individuals God notices us. But let's look at this family then. So we're told about this man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. I mean, you can imagine the conversation, can't you? Got this man, Elimelech, married to Naomi. They're in Bethlehem. There's famine, there's no food, they're hungry. And Elimelech says, you know what, I think in Moab they've got food. This love is rubbish here. This place is rubbish. Why don't we go to Moab? Can you imagine them talking about Moab? How Moab would begin to become this place of such fantasy for them. Oh, it's going to be good in Moab. Listen, darling, everything, all our troubles will be over if we go to Moab. Moab's the place to be. There is no other place like it on earth. Let's go. I don't know whether he talked like that, but they pin their hope on Moab. They shift their confidence to this unknown land called Moab. They daydream about it. And it's as if Moab sits there inviting them. Oh, look, we've got lots of food over here. It's really good. Life's good over here. It's so rubbish in Bethlehem. Come over here. It's good over here. And they set out. At least we're doing something, they say. At least there's food there. A new life awaits us. A new hope. There's hope. Can you imagine them kind of breathing in? Oh, we're hope. We're leaving behind Bethlehem. We're going to Moab, the land of hope. But here's the deal. It is a false hope. It's the first big thing I want you to see. The false hope of Moab. This land of Moab that seems to be so attractive and to offer so much, it's false. You see, here is the deal. Bethlehem is the land that God had given his people. In fact, do you know what the the name Bethlehem means? Anyone know what the name Bethlehem literally means in Hebrew? House of bread. They're living in the place that's called House of Bread. They're living in the place where God has promised to provide. They're living in the place that God says, "This is you're my people, here's the land, I give you this land, it's a good land. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. God has promised to give, provide for his people there. For 40 years, right, when they'd wandered around the desert for 40 years, God had provided them with bread for 40 years in the desert. He's not short of provision, right? 
He's good with bread. Bread is one of those things that God does really well. So when Jesus rocks up, he has the same thing, right? He's good with bread. Bread is not a problem to God. But they, rather than turn to him and say, God Almighty, we, we're sorry for the way we've behaved. Please provide for us. Please help us. Rather than turning to God, they turn away from God and they look for security somewhere else. They pin their hopes somewhere else. And in fact, it gets worse than that because it's not just that they pin their hope somewhere else. They pin their hope on Moab. I mean, Moab, we don't feel that, right? If, I, if, if you had been living at that time, you'd have been deeply shocked by what I just said. Moab was enemy territory. They're baddies in Moab. This is a dangerous move. But they're pinning their hopes there. They're moving away from dependence on God to dependence on self. They're away from God's promises and they're moving to human solutions. They're away from waiting patiently to let's get it sorted now. They're moving away from humility to pride. And I want you to see something, and this is very subtle, and I really want you to try and stick with this because this is, I think it's very important for us to get hold of. When they make their move away from Bethlehem, how long do they plan to go for? What does it say? As they leave, what are they saying to each other? This is just for a while. This is a temporary thing. We're going to go and live in Mount just for a while. This isn't permanent. We're not abandoning Bethlehem completely. We'll come back, but we're just going for a while. But look what happens when they get there. We're told in verse 2, the man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Marlon and Kilian. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah. You see, Bethlehem, they're in Bethlehem, they're in Bethlehem. But they've gone to Moab and they live there. Now Elimelech, verse 3, Naomi's husband died and she was left with her two sons. That's it. That's the land of promise. That's, that's the land, right? That's their promised land. That's where they pin their hope. They get there and he's dead. It's pretty brutal, isn't it? It's pretty brutal. Now, what would you expect Naomi to do next? Wouldn't you expect her to say, this is rubbish. This is a rubbish place to be. Let's go back to Bethlehem. But she doesn't. In fact, her two sons marry Moabite women. They settle down there and they live there for ten years. Going for a while. Just for a while. They are absolutely settled in Moab. They have become settled away from God in this place of Moab. And it's only when her two sons die that things even begin to change. Now let me try and show you this, okay? This is very important for us to get hold of. Because for most of us, our experience, when things start to go wrong in our lives is to run away. That's a very natural reaction. To try and run to find something to fix it. If only I could have this. You know, some, life is really tough. I feel the pain of living in God's broken world. I'm in a world of judgment. I'm in a world that is, that, where things are bad and things go wrong and people die and there's famine and sickness. I feel that. And as soon as something goes wrong, 
we are very, very quick to run to Moab to try and find something in the world. If only I had this. Oh, if only I could have that. If I had that, then everything would be okay. I want to tell you this. It's a false hope. It's a false hope. If only I had the money. If only I had more money, then everything would be okay. That's the promise of Moab, right? It's a false hope. It's a lie. If only I had this relationship. I know, you know, I know that God says He'll provide for me, but actually I don't trust Him. I don't trust Him. I'm going to run and find a relationship here. But it's a false hope. It's not real. Because to be away from God is to be away from the one who can truly provide everything you need. And this is what we do, okay? We think, well, it'll just be for a while. It'll just be for a while. Just for a while, I'm going to, you know, just while I start my career, I'm going to work really, really hard. Just while I start my career. It'll only be for a while. It won't be forever. It won't be forever. But you're kidding yourself. Because when you move to Moab, when you put your hope there, that's where you live. That's where you settle down. Once it becomes about the money and the job and the career, that's where you, that's where you settle, that's where you stay. I know that you say that you want, I know that we say it will just be for a while, that's where we end up. As soon as we turn our back on God and say, you're not the great provider, I'm going to seek out a relationship, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, someone who doesn't love Jesus, but they're over here, they're, they'll, you know, they'll, they'll give me what I need. Can I tell you, that's where you'll stay. Here's this book, and it's warning us, the, the false hope of Moab. And pretty immediately, the dreams of Moab are shattered by harsh reality of life. So the two sons die. And now you're left with these three women. And uh, we're going to see what happens next. And it gets, it gets terrific. Okay, that was, I know it's heavy stuff. I know it's hard stuff. But we need to hear it. Okay, we've got to hear this warning. God wants to speak to us and warn us. But it's, it's, going, to get, it's going to get good. Have a look what happens next. Um, verse 6. When Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had come to the aid of his people by providing food for them, she and her daughters-in-law prepared to return home. Right, I want you to do me a favour, okay? I want you to do something for me. I want you to try and picture, from what Gene read, he's read through the chapter, we read about this woman, Naomi. What's her character like? I wonder what you think. I reckon normally, we imagine this woman, Naomi, as being someone who's a bit, well, a bit miserable, really. I mean, so look what she says at the end of the letter, at the end of the chapter, verse 20. Have a look at this. If one of your friends said this to you, you'd think, oh man, they're really having a bad day. Don't call me Naomi, she told them. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. Call me bitter. uh, Naomi means pleasant. Mara means bitter. So if you have a child, don't call them Mara. It's not a nice name. It's a a bad name. And so it would be easy, wouldn't it, to think, oh, here she is, this bitter, twisted old lady. I looked up a definition of bitter. Here we go. 
Feeling or showing anger, hurt or resentment because of bad experiences or a sense of unjust treatment. And we can easily imagine Naomi to be this resentful, twisted, cynical old lady. You know the bloke from Up? Oh, maybe you don't. Okay. If you've seen the film Up, right, it's a terrific film. If you've never seen it, it really is a fantastically good film. Um, although the first 20 minutes will make you cry. And uh, there's this old bloke. He has, a, he has this beautiful relationship with this woman. Then she, she die, dies. Sorry. And um, he becomes... He becomes very bitter, very angry, horrible, horrible man. Okay, because of his experience. And I think that we, we imagine that Naomi's kind of like that. That she's sort of like mm, bitter and twisted. Oh God, she made my life all bitter. That kind of thing. Now I want to say, I do not think that's what's happening. In fact, I want to try and persuade you this, this afternoon that actually Naomi is a beautiful picture of how you should respond. That, th- this is my second heading. The false hope of Moab, the fragile hope of return. You see, here's my point, right? We must distinguish between a bitter experience and a bitter heart. They are not the same thing. A bitter experience can lead people to become bitter, right? We've all seen that. In fact, most of us probably have experienced that. Something happens in your life, it's a bitter thing, and it makes you bitter. You know, so someone stabs you in the back and you get all kind of really angry about it and bitter, right? That sort of thing. But I want to say that a bitter experience does not have to make you bitter. It doesn't inevitably lead to bitterness. And I want to try and show you that I think we see in Naomi not bitterness, but a flickering faith, a fragile hope in the midst of a bitter experience. Right, very quickly, don't freak, I've got five reasons why I think that she's uh, not bitter. She's had a bitter experience, but she's not bitter. Uh, Here are my five reasons, let me do this quickly. Firstly, because she goes back home. Right? If she was genuinely bitter against God and angry and resentful against God, she'd be sitting in Moab and going, well, stuff you, I'm never going back there again. Hmm. Right? And yet, when she hears that God has come to the aid of his people in Bethlehem, she's ready to return. She wants to go back. She returns. She humbles. That's a humbling thing, right? To say, you know what? I was wrong. I was wrong to leave Bethlehem. I should never have left. Let's go back. She's ready to return. She sets out home. At last, she's ready to give up on this pathetic dream of Moab. She's ready to give up on the false dream and come back to God. A bitter heart would refuse to return. Secondly, um, she cares for others. Look at the way she treats her daughters-in-law. She really cares about them. She prays for them. So she says to them, have a look at um, verse 8. And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, go back each of you to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you've shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. That is not how bitter people speak. Bitter people go, I hope your life's as bad as mine. I hope you have a miserable life and I hope your arm falls off. That's kind of how bitter people... <laughs> That's how bitter people talk, right? 
That's, that's, that's bitterness. Here is a woman. She really cares for these girls. She really cares about them. She loves them. She wants them to flourish. Third reason. She acknowledges God. She, she knows what's happened. She doesn't say, oh, I've been really unlucky. I've just had a bad run of it. Um, have a look um, at verse 13. She says, would you wait until they grow up? <laughs> She's very practical, isn't she? Look, to be honest, girls, if I had a husband, <laughs> you know, you know, this isn't going to happen, is it? You know, I'm, it's going to take a while to have a kayak here, and then, you know, you have to wait, and then wait, and whew, it's a bit weird. So let's not go with that plan. And um, verse 13, would you wait until they grow up? Would you remain unmarried for them? No, my daughters, it's more bitter for me than for you, because the Lord's hand has turned against me. So she acknowledges that God, what has happened to her has been done to her by God. She's acknowledging God. And she says it again at the end, uh, in verse 20. Don't call me Naomi, she said. Call me Mara, because the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi? The Lord has afflicted me. The Almighty has brought misfortune upon me. Do you see? Do you see? She's absolutely conscious that what's happened to her has been done to her by God. She's not some bitter, twisted old lady who's got some wrong theology. She's absolutely right. Because she knows that it was wrong to leave Bethlehem, she knows that she's made mistakes. She says, I'm under God's judgment. I, I, I'm, I'm under God's punishment. But you don't, I don't think you trace that she's angry with God. She never once blames God. She never once excuses herself and she never once points the finger at God. Instead, she goes back to God. Uh, the fourth reason... And this is, very, this is very compelling to me, why she, she must not be a bitter person. It's because she's deeply attractive. Because Ruth and Orpah both say, there's no way we're leaving you. They weep over her. Now, to be honest, most of the bitter people I know, I can't wait to get away from them. I don't want to spend hanging around with a bitter person. A grumpy, grouchy, resentful, self-pitying person. But that's not Naomi. She's deeply attractive. Ruth sees something that's so attractive in Naomi that she says, I want to give everything to come with you. She's deeply attractive. And it's interesting, isn't it? Because can't you think, don't you know people who've experienced horrifically bitter things, who have not become bitter, and who are fantastically attractive? Haven't you seen that in people? People who've handled bitter experiences, handled suffering in such a gracious way that actually they've become deeply attractive. That's Naomi. She's on her way home. And finally, the final reason I want to say that she's not uh, bitter is because she's not on the scrap heap. Because when she gets back to Bethlehem, she comes and she says, God's, I went away full, but let me back empty. The story of the book of Ruth is about how God refills Naomi. At the end of the book of Ruth, you get Naomi stored to a place of massive blessing. And here's what I want you to know. Past failure does not rule out future blessing. That's what we discover about Naomi as she comes back. 
She doesn't have a lot of hope, right? She's, she's, I'm, not, I'm not saying she's some massively strong woman of this fragile. Oh yeah, she's very battered. She's very bruised. But at least she's coming back. She's not bursting with joy. But look at the last verse. Can't you feel a little hint of hope here? It's fragile, it's small, but look. So Naomi returned from Moab. It's like fanfare. She's back. Accompanied by Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law. Arriving in Bethlehem when? Just as the barley harvest was beginning. She's come back to the place of blessing. She's come back to the place of hope. And I want to say this as clearly as I can. Here is the encouragement, right? Here is the encouragement to those of us who have gone to Moab, who sought blessing away from God and in Moab. You know what? As we recognize our wrong, as we recognize what we've done, as we recognize that God, that we've done wrong against God, as we return to him, we discover we find ourselves welcomed home. It's a beautiful thing. And to be honest with you, my experience of being a Christian is that I go to Moab most days. You know, there's the big visits to Moab, which might be for 10 years. But honestly, sometimes I go to Moab for a few hours. And I think, oh, everything's going wrong. That's terrible. I've got to fix, I've got to fix. I'm so stressed, I'm so stressed, I'm bitter. Everything's going wrong, everything's going wrong. They go, oh, hang on, hang on. Oh, yes. Come back to God. Repent. Yes. That's normal Christian living. But the danger, the big danger is that when things go wrong, bitterness takes a hold. And the bitter experiences makes you bitter. Hebrews chapter 13 says, maybe 12, says, see to it that no bitter root gets a hold of your heart. See to it that your bitter experiences drive you back to Bethlehem. And here's the beautiful thing, right? Here is... Oh, we'll get to that in a second. What, what, uh, uh, let's, let's just uh, quickly look at Ruth, all right? Are we all all right? Everyone okay? <sighs> Sorry, there's, there's a lot today. Um, here's, here we go. Ruth has a f- the f- is the firm hope of faith. You look at her. She's unbelievable. Her only experience... Get this. This is what makes me laugh about Ruth. Her only experience of God is what? What she's seen in the life of Naomi. She's from Moab. She knows nothing about God. She's an outsider. She's a foreigner. She knows nothing. She has no right to God's promises. She has nothing. All she's seen is this girl, this lady Naomi, turn up. Her husband die. She says, I'll marry one of your sons. And then he dies. That's her experience of God. And yet she, in some way, has come to such a place of understanding... Who God truly is, but look what she's willing to say. Um, Look at verse 14. At this they wept aloud again. Then Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye, but Ruth clung to her. Look, said Naomi, your sister-in-law is going back to her people and her gods. Go back with her. But Ruth replied, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. This This is stirring stuff, right? This, this would make a great Disney theme tune. Where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God 
my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. When Naomi realised that Ruth was determined to go with her, she stopped. (laughs) Now what's going on? Here's Ruth. Okay, Ruth... Right, Naomi left Bethlehem to find hope in Moab. Ruth leaves Moab to find hope in Bethlehem. And she is utterly, utterly sold out. I think it's very interesting. Does she say, look, let's go to Bethlehem for a while? I'll go for a while. What does she say? She says, I'm going to be buried in Bethlehem. She leaves everything, she leaves her family, she leaves her gods, she leaves her religion, her upbringing, everything. She leaves everything to pin all of her hope in Bethlehem. Because God has come to the aid of his people in Bethlehem. It's not a half-hearted decision. It's a costly decision. And yet she says, there's no real hope for me in Moab. My hope is in Bethlehem. And I want to say to you that she is a great model, a great picture to us of what it means to live by faith. What it means to be someone who's an outsider. And there may be people here today who say, I'm not a Christian. I don't know anything about this stuff. You just That's, that's Ruth, right? <laughs> She's like, you know, I'm just, I'm just a person in Moab doing my Moabite things. But then suddenly she hears about God, the God who comes to help his people in Bethlehem, and she goes, I want that. And she leaves everything to go find hope in Bethlehem. That's what it means, right? Because I want to tell you today that God has come to help his people, and he came to Bethlehem. The hope of the world is found in Bethlehem. Because 2,000 years ago, a baby was born in Bethlehem, this very town. The great, 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 great grandson of Ruth, born in Bethlehem. And Jesus is the hope of the world. Jesus is the place where true blessing can be found. There is false hope in Moab. There is true hope in Bethlehem. Because Jesus came into the world to be the true king who would put all things right. Jesus came to be the true king who would take those who were just living for themselves, living their own way, who would take, who would take those people and would restore them and bring them to a place of blessing. If I get this right... Jesus is the one who would go to a cross and on the cross he experienced the bitter judgment of God. He experienced the bitterness and the pain and the suffering of our rebellion and sin so that he can give us bread. Jesus said, I am the bread. It's me. I'm the one you eat. I'm the one where hope is found. And in just the same way that Ruth realised that Bethlehem was the hope of the world and she said, I'm leaving Moab and I'm going to go and eat the bread in Bethlehem. I want to invite you. I want to command. I want to call you today to let go of Moab, to leave Moab and the nonsense rubbish in Moab and to turn instead to Bethlehem. And I want to invite you to come eat the bread of Bethlehem. 
Come to Jesus, the hope of the world. Come trust Him. Come love Him. Come pin all of your hope on Him. Come die and be buried with Him. And be raised to new life. I'm excited about this book of Ruth, right? It's a fantastic story. But it shows us about the God in whom true hope can be found. So for some of us, let's just wrap this all up, right? For some of us, we're tempted to go to Moab. Life's tough, we're tempted to run away. Don't believe the lies of Moab. For some of us, we're in Moab. We feel battered, we feel bruised, we know we've stuffed up. I want to encourage you, you can return. You can return to God. You absolutely can. He loves to restore. And for some of us, we're, we're in Moab, we're outsiders, and maybe for the very first time, you want to say... <laughs> Man, this Jesus thing is cool. Come to him. Leave Moab. Come to Jesus. Find life and peace and blessing in him. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we confess this afternoon that we are often drawn to Moab. We're often tempted to think that life will be better if we abandon you and go there. Father, please help us to see that that is a lie. Help us to see that is a false hope. And this afternoon we pray that we might go to Bethlehem, eat the bread of Bethlehem, the bread of life, the one who is the saviour of the world, this true king of Israel, this one who died and this one who rose. Father, help us to trust this great king to leave everything to follow him. Amen.